started this morning in Hebrews uh, chapter number one, just a few um, comments. Do remember that we are two weeks away from Easter. And so I know it's, it, I don't know, it's like creeps up on us. And uh, it wasn't, you know, I talked with Michael this week just about how it's just right around the corner. So um, do be inviting uh, friends and family for that day. A lot of times people will come to church on Easter that wouldn't come on another, another day of the year or Easter and Christmas. And so it's a great opportunity to get people into the Lord's house that um, might not come otherwise. And uh, we'll do our best to preach the gospel that day. Also, um, on Friday, the, a few days before, on Good Friday, we will have a special service here at the church. We'll get you more details on that. I do apologize this morning. Normally, we take the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, and um, we did not communicate. And so we are not taking the Lord's Supper this morning, but we will save it for Good Friday. So it may be, be a special, we'll do it as a special uh, time on Good Friday, probably not a better day to do it on. So even when we forget things, we recognize that God is sovereign, right? And something good can come out of it. And so we'll, we'll save that for um, Good Friday and encourage you to come for that. We'll probably start around 6.30 or 7 and just be here for an hour um, and uh, just worship the Lord together. Hebrews chapter number one, and um, if you've been with us on the journey so far, this is our fourth sermon in the series as we will go through the entire book of Hebrews. Um, before we're done, we'll get through the entire thing, but remember the main theme is Jesus Christ is better. He's superior. The main goal is to get the, um, the, the Hebrew people uh, to let go of some of those things that they held to, some of the traditions, some of the sacrifices and ceremonies that they held to, some of the religiosities that they held to as being um, ways in which they could enter into God's favor. And again, remember, we talked about this last week, um, 2,000 years of being 2,000 plus years of being taught this, 50 generations of people who were um, stooped in ceremonialism and religiosity, and that was the way in which they were to enter into God's presence. Um, now they're being told in the New Testament that all of those things were meant, they were told this in the Old Testament but didn't quite see it, but now they're being told that these things were f fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and therefore it's no longer necessary to be in bondage to the ceremonies and sacrifices that consumed them in the Old Testament. A matter of fact, as you study the Old Testament, you will find that the ceremonies and sacrifices and the law and all of those things was never meant to bring somebody closer to God. It was truly meant to cause people to realize God's character and, and to understand their inabilities within themselves to please this very holy God, this very just and, and perfect God. And so ultimately, as we come to realize how um, depraved we are, how incapable we are of pleasing this holy and just God, we then run to Jesus Christ who um, sufficiently satisfied all of God's requirements for salvation. And Jesus Christ is the essence of salvation. And uh, that we can be, uh, as um, the scriptures tell us, we can be hidden in Christ and we can become a partaker of his death and resurrection on our behalf. And because of that, be um, united with the Lord. 
and be in harmony with him, that we would be at peace with, with a perfectly holy God based upon a perfectly holy substitute. And uh, we get to partake of that by faith. We get to be a, a participant, if you will, in what Christ Jesus did by trusting in his works. The, 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 the danger or the struggle is, is holding on to those, those sacrifices and ceremonies um, while, and, and even almost joining the two together and saying, I will accept Jesus, but I'm not going to let go of these other things. What Jesus wants to show us in the book of Hebrews is that these things are no longer necessary because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these things. He is the essence of them. He is the, he is the true light that came into this world. So what we saw in the first uh, few verses, we saw that Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets in the Old Testament. We saw that he is superior to the ceremonies, sacrifices, and relics that we see in the Old Testament. And we also saw that he's superior to the angels who were seen as a, a minister or a messenger of the law. Um, they were the ones that ministered the law to the people. They were um, honored for that. His superiority has been seen in relation to his words. His words are better than that of the prophets of the Old Testament. His revelation of God is better than the revelation that we see through the sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Testament. And we want to remember this, the reason why that they are better, the reason why he is a better revelation of God than these sacrifices and ceremonies and relics is that they were, they were um, filtered, if you will. They were limited in what they could reveal about God. Jesus Christ is not, and the first three verses tell us that he is the full expression of the glory of God. He is the full radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the glory of God. So when we look at Jesus Christ as seen in his word and through his word, we are seeing a full expression of the character of God. Jesus Christ is, is that expression. He is, he is that person through which and in which we can see him. So we see it in his revelation. And then lastly, we see it, we've seen it so far in his works that Jesus Christ's works are more, um, are better, if you will, than that of the angels. And we looked at a several things the last couple of weeks. They're better because they actually accomplish something. Um, they, are, they go deeper, they go further, they accomplish the things that the angels are incapable of accomplishing. And they accomplish things that the angels are not even capable of understanding. Now, that Jesus Christ is able to accomplish things um, in relation to our salvation that angels are not able to do. And so we trust in Jesus and we go to Jesus and we depend upon Jesus for all things in life. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, he is everything that we need for salvation, but also for living out our daily lives. We see this morning that Jesus Christ was, Jesus Christ has in verse number um, four, it says, having become as much superior to angels. In other words, the superiority of Christ is, is that much, he is that much more superior to angels in the same sense that his, the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we have this idea of name being presented to us. What name, there's a name that Jesus Christ has that is superior to that of angels. 
Okay, there's a, a name that is significant to that of angels. And this text is going to unpack that for us. We're going to look this morning at four names mentioned in this text about Jesus. Two of them um, could be the fulfillment of this verse, the names that he inherited. And two of them are, are names that are related to, his, to him historically, names that are related to his eternality names that he has always had and always will have, but these names are meant to tell us something about who Jesus Christ was. When we think of names today in our culture, oftentimes we don't think very deep about names. We, when we're naming our children and we have a number of new children in the church and some that are on the way and these parents have thought about what, what am I going to name my child? I remember when we were naming our children, we thought and we we worked through different names, and it was like when we, when we knew the name, it would just like, kind of like fit, right? It just kind of like ran together. And uh, it's interesting because my kids' names, their middle name all has a very specific meaning, something that was going on. Um, Alyssa's middle name, our oldest daughter, her middle name is Hope because we were hoping for a girl. Um, Angela's middle name is Faith because we, were, we learned a lot about faith through Angela, and uh, she taught us a lot about what it means to trust God for God's will and desire. Olivia's middle name is Rose, and we didn't know what that meant at the time, but we know what it means now, and, uh, because she's a, a rose of a person, and if you get to know her, you'll understand that. And then Autumn's name is Joy, and so um, these, are, these are names that we gave our kids based upon certain things that, that were just... Uh, they were important to us at that, at that time. Not only do we do that, but we also give people names based upon um, a relation, family member, or maybe we name them after our, our, one of their grandparents or their uncles or aunts or whatever might be the case. We name them in relation to their family members. Um, we name them in ways that, um, things that rhyme. We name them in relation to somebody that we respect or honor from the past. Um, we name them in relation to what is cool and common names. And you hear, even if you study generationally, study the names that people are given, you'll find out that during this season, this name was the most common name given. And then it goes away, and we have different names and more common um, names used today. And names are always being uh, brought to the forefront. Um, we name our kids based upon some kind of a, you know, superstar or superhero or whatever might be the case, um, a movie star, or just something that, that, that we reflect on. Biblically, names meant something more, though. Names were often a reflection of something about a person or an individual, something about their character or their nature. It was like a, a trait that, that you could see in somebody. When we think of Abraham, um, Abraham, we think of the trait of faith. Um, they kind of connected together, that, that, that character trait along with that, with that person's name. Um, throughout the Bible, there are people with names, and those names meant something. Um, Adam, the word means earth, man, soil, which, you know, kind of all goes together, right? Uh, Adam was uh, uh, created by God from the soil or from the earth. Um, Abraham and uh, Nimrod was the guy who built the... the, um, the uh, the structure that tried to get to heaven, and his name means rebellious. Eve means living. Isaac meant laughter. Jacob was the deceiver, and his name meant surplanter or deceiver. Jesus Christ's name means 
Jehovah is salvation, deliverer. Uh, Emmanuel means God with us. All of these names have a special meaning to them. And, and in scripture, names, names meant something. They were significant in regards to perhaps a character trait that an individual was going to be reflected by or, or, or God would give the person the name that they would call their, um, their child. We also see this in name changes in the Bible. Abraham's name was changed from Abram. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. Naomi's name to Mara. Simon to Peter and Saul to Paul. In each one of these cases, we just see the significance of names. Proverbs 22 and 21, the Bible says a good man is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And then Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1 says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Names matter in Scripture And so in this context, as Jesus Christ is distinguished from angels, he's distinguished from angels based upon these names. Specifically, um, I believe two names given in this context, but we're going to look at four this morning, and we're going to try to understand how these four names distinguish Jesus Christ from, from everything and everyone else. And remember, the main goal is to draw us into a faith in Christ. It's to draw us into a trust, a dependence on Christ, a a believing that Christ is better, a believing that Christ is more significant. In life, as we're drawn to perhaps ceremonies or or, uh, sacrifices or relics or as we're drawn maybe even to spirituality, there are times in our life that we think, man, if I'm just more spiritual, then this will all work out. What we're seeing exposed to us in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is that person. Jesus is the one that is satisfactory. He is the one that satisfies us. He's the one who cares for us. He's the one who is capable of doing all of the things that we need in life. So that's why we look to Jesus in every situation and in every circumstance. We'll notice that in these um, 11 verses, verses four down to verse number 14, almost this entire passage of scripture is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's not a, it's not a single direct quote from the Old Testament, but it's many direct quotes from the Old Testament. We'll look at some of those this morning. Okay, so the first thought this morning is why is this connection made to the Old Testament? And what is the author of Hebrews doing by Uh, basically, again, going through and quoting this entire portion of Scripture from the Old Testament. What's he trying to do? The purpose of, of this text coming from the Old Testament is for the Lord, in his word, to bring those things that were meant to point to Jesus to help people see that they are now fulfilled in Jesus. He's he's connecting the the person of the New Testament of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, to the Old Testament pictures of Christ. He's he's bringing that that in front of these people. This is the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. The one who over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in this one person. This is a, a miracle that is, is, is really unmatched 
that this one person, Jesus Christ, could, could, could fulfill all of these prophecies of the Old Testament that are meant to point to him. And the reason why he goes back to the Old Testament when dealing with these Hebrew people is to help them to see that Jesus is the one who was spoken of in the Old Testament. He was the one who was prophesied about. He was the one who would be the king that would sit on David's throne forever. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah and is the deliverer. Each of these verses comes from the Old Testament. Each of these names that's mentioned to tell us about Jesus Christ is, is, is from the Old Testament. It is directly connected to a name in the Old Testament. We're reminded in Luke 24 and verse 27 when Jesus Christ has resurrected and he meets two men on the road to Emmaus, he says to them, Remember, he opens up their eyes so that they can see and understand the truths about him as they're leaving his crucifixion. The Bible says that he began with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them all of the scriptures of the things concerning himself. When Jesus Christ began in the Old Testament to begin to unfold to these two men who he was, how he was the fulfillment of all of these things in the Old Testament, how it, it was him who was being spoken of in the Old Testament when the king was spoken of, when the sacrificial lamb was laid on that altar year after year, it was Jesus Christ that would be the fulfillment of that. When Isaac was taken up on the mountain and the Lord says that Abraham raised up his, his knife to, to, to plunge it into him to kill his only son, that there was a, a lamb that was caught in the thicket and he says that that lamb was a substitute for Isaac. That was Jesus. Even in the King James Bible, it uses the term that God will provide himself for a lamb. It, it, it implies that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that picture. And all the sacrifices and ceremonies of the Old Testament were meant to point to Jesus. And so he begins to, to teach to them and explain to them that all the way back in the Old Testament, in, in, in Genesis, when, when, when in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned and they're, and they're condemned by God and God has said, if you sin, you will surely die. That they stand before God and they're guilty and God kills an animal in their place and he takes that animal skin and he puts it on their body. He clothes them with animal skin. What is that a picture of? That's Jesus. It is his blood that was shed for our sins. It is his righteousness by which we are clothed. It is that hope that we have. All of that, thousands of years prior to Jesus Christ ever entering into the world, this was the picture that we were having explained to us, opened up to us. All throughout Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you will see these terms consistently. I'm just going to read Matthew 12, 17, but ultimately you see it in, in a number of different Places He says, this was, was done to fulfill that which was written by, and then it gives some prophet's name. In Matthew, it's the prophet Isaiah. What the Lord is doing in the book of Hebrews is saying, let there be no question as to who the Messiah is. Let there be no question as to who the deliverer is. Let there be no question as to who the Son of God is. It is Jesus Christ. 
And he is the one who is capable. And he doesn't refer to him as one who is coming again, but he refers to him as one who has already come. In this context, the Hebrew people were still looking for the Messiah. That was their greatest struggle. But Jesus Christ, yes, he will come again, but he has also already come to be the Savior for our sins. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophets and prophecies. He is the fulfillment of all of the pictures in the Old Testament. He is the one to whom those things pointed. And now he has come. And there are those who are wanting to hold on to the things that pointed to Christ and not hold on to Christ himself. This is what he is arguing. This is what he is defending We see these four names, and so the second thought this morning, first of all, we see the connection to the Old Testament to bring out and to help people understand that this Messiah, Jesus Christ the Messiah, is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. The second thing that we see this morning is what what are these four names that are given, and what do they mean? The Bible says, having been given... Uh, uh, that he has become much more superior to angels and the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you want to just make a, a note here, this is God communicating, he's saying which of these angels did God ever say, did God make this distinct statement, God the Father making this distinct statement about someone and that would be Jesus Christ. And he says this, He says, God says this, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you want to take your Bibles, we'll flip back to the book of Psalms, the second chapter in Psalms, The Bible says, beginning in verse number six, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Um, uh, Yeah, let's just keep going from there. My holy hill, I will tell of of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask for me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the end of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him." Again, this is the direct quote from what Hebrews is quoting here in verse number number five. He's quoting from Psalm chapter number two, referring to the Lord himself, the one who again would be the promised Messiah, who again would be the one who would be the king that would sit on the throne in Zion. Jesus Christ is the one who would fulfill these things. And his inheritance would be all the people of the earth. He says, I will make the nations your inheritance and the end of the earth will be your possession. And Jesus Christ is the one who will sit on the throne. And we, we know that we anticipate his coming kingdom and what we know of as the millennial kingdom. But 
Today, Jesus Christ sits on the throne of the hearts of all those who believe in him and trust him. He is the king of their life. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When he refers here to, you are my son, he doesn't stop there. He says, uh, he says it again in um, 2 Samuel seven fourteen, as well as here. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And he's referring to in 2 Samuel, he's talking about Solomon and David's son and, and God's relationship with, his, with David's son and his throne would be forever. Because he would, not because he would sit on it, but again, Solomon is a picture of the Lord. David is a picture of the Lord. His throne being established forever was not that David would sit on his throne forever, but that David's offspring being Jesus. Jesus would sit on the throne forever. He was his son, the son of God, or he was the son of God. This refers to him in regards to his origin and his relationship. You'll notice at the end of this verse, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a very special term in relation to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was the only begotten son of God. We become children of God, and uh, as we see in the book of Galatians, by adoption. We are adopted into the family of God and we become sons of God as we are indwelt by Christ and we indwell the um, body of Christ, uh, the church. Jesus Christ was the begotten son of God. In in other words, his his origin was that of God was his father. In the same way that my dad is my dad, Jesus Christ's father was God and is God. We see this in his virgin birth. He had no earthly father, but yet he came from God. He was born of God. He originated with God. John 1 and verse 14. If you want to turn there with me, you'd be welcome to. John 1 and verse number 14. The Bible says, And the Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was the only son from the father. Again, he was the only begotten son of God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the the father's side, he hath made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent um, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is speaking of John the Baptist. And obviously, again, John the Baptist begins to point people to Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is from God. He is of the seed of the Father. He is, he is, his Blood is that of God's blood. His nature is that of God's nature. Everything about him is exactly like that of God. The Bible tells us in Luke 135, and the angels answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow, overshadow you 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. We see in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, this promise, this promised Messiah would be prophesied about. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is the son of God based upon his virgin birth. Jesus Christ is not only the son of God based upon his virgin birth, but based upon his righteous life. He was originated with God, but not only was he originated with God, but Jesus Christ lived out the life of God. He exemplified for us the character of God. He showed us the nature of God in a, in a perfect expression. We see in Matthew 3:17 at Jesus's at Jesus' birth, we see the Father saying from heaven, a voice came down from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see it as transfiguration in Luke chapter number nine that the voice comes out of heaven again and says, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He is the Son of God based upon his origin. He is also the Son of God based upon his righteous life. His righteous living. In other words, he perfectly represented the Father in the same way that we represent or look like or talk like or live like our, our parents. The, the Son perfectly represented that of the Father. And then he is called the Son of God based upon the resurrection. In other words, Jesus Christ was called the Son of God because of his power. The Bible tells us in John chapter number 10 that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back up again. Jesus Christ had the power to lay down his life. Jesus Christ had the power to resurrect. It was his power that he had. This was a reflection of him being a son of God. Romans 1 verse 4 says, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Jesus Christ is not only the son of God, but Jesus Christ is also God the son. Meaning that Jesus Christ is God. We see this in the second name that he inherited. If you would go back to our text again, and it's found in verse number uh, 10. The second name that he has inherited is the word Lord. And this term simply means master. It means um, sovereign, one who is in control, one who is an owner or a master. The Greek word is kurios here, and it comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word Adonai. And the word Adonai is given to the Lord in the New Testament, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That name Adonai is referred to the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, while in the Old Testament, the term Adonai is in reference to God. When we see the Lord in the Old Testament, the word Adonai is used to describe the lordship of God. The same term is used in the New Testament to describe the lordship of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he, was, he inherited, he was given the name of Lord. The Bible tells us in John 5 that he will be the judge 
of all the earth, that all judgment has been given to the Son, and his judgment will be perfect, and his judgment will be holy, and his judgment will be fair. Jesus Christ is the perfect essence of righteousness, and therefore he can hold men accountable for their sins. This term is, and this verse is, comes from Psalm 102, verse uh, 25 through 27. Later, we see the same term used in verse number 13 when he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's referring to this same name, this name Adonai. He says, Lord, sit at my right hand. The Father is speaking to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There is so much packed into that simple phrase that we do not have time to uncover or unpack, but we see the Father serving for the Son. We see the Father working for the Son. We see the Father in in, in John 10, the Bible says, all that the Father gives to me, the Father blessing the Son. We see this equality. Philippians 2 and verse 5 through 8, the Bible says, based upon the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that um, he will be given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think I just combined two verses together. You guys know where I'm going. Romans 10, 9 and 10, I think, is where we were, where I combined the two together. But Jesus Christ has given a name, the name Lord, the name, the name Master, the name, the name, again, that comes from the Old Testament, the name Adonai. He's, he's given that name as a result of his resurrection, as a result of his power. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Lord He is the Adonai. You go back to verse number, we go back into verse number eight. Um, Actually, go back to verse number six. And we'll look at a couple of of eternal names. We've already looked at his inherent names. Now we're gonna look at some of his eternal names. Just two really quickly here. Jesus Christ is referred to by two names here that are, again, directly related to God's being referred to these in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us in verse number six. The Bible says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The firstborn is not referencing to the fact that Jesus Christ was the firstborn, because we know that he wasn't. It's referencing to the fact that he was superior. The the Greek word here is prototokos, which means the the, the, the first in, in superiority, the first in, in, um, in importance. Jesus Christ is the, is the one who is the most significant. Jesus Christ is the one who is the most important. And then it says, let all God's angels worship him. This comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter number 32 and verse 43. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh. 
um, translated again and referred to Yahweh, Jesus Christ referred to as Yahweh, which ultimately was the most sacred name given to God. The Jewish people would not even say the name. They would not speak the name Yahweh. This is why we have the name Jehovah, is because they would not speak the name Yahweh because it was so holy and so significant. They did not see themselves as worthy to speak this sacred name of the Lord. So when we see the most sacred name of the Lord, Yahweh, and we see that in the Old Testament it's used, and in the New Testament we are reminded that it was pointing not just to God the Father, but this term Yahweh is also in referencing to God the Son. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the one true God. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the self-existing God. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, has life within himself. And because he has life within himself, he's able to give life to others. We see this probably at its most prominent point in the book of Exodus when the the Lord comes to Moses in in the fiery bush. You guys will remember the story. The Lord says to him in verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. I am is is the Yahweh, I I am has sent you. He goes on to say, and God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Abraham. Of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We have no question as to who this is speaking to Moses here. This is God speaking to Moses. Yet the same name is not just given to God the Father or to God speaking in this context, but also referred to Jesus Christ in the same way. We see this term used a few times in this text and in, and in the Old Testament, not specifically in this text, but from the verses that are quoted from the Old Testament. We think about I am who I am. Jesus Christ is everything. He is sufficient. He is capable. The last term that we see used here is used in verse number eight and nine. And there's kind of a, it's, it's uh, it's kind of a confusing um, uh, reference. It comes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. He says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. And if you go back to the, the Psalms, you'll see that the word used here is Elohim. And it's used three times in this phrase. It's a name given to the one who is speaking. It's a name given to the one who is being spoken about. And the name given to the one who is spoken to. And your throne, O God, Elohim, is forever and ever. He's speaking to the Son. He's speaking to Jesus. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Elohim, the name given to God, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. There's that Elohim again. It is is God working with God to accomplish his work. And and, and neither one of them are less significant or less important. What are we seeing is we're seeing who Jesus Christ is in the New Testament. 
Who are these promises made about in the New Testament? What is the fulfillment of these things? This term, Elohim, is used 49 times in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. You will find it in verse number one of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What we see is that that God that created the heavens and the earth is Jesus. It's not disconnected from him. It is connected to him. In the beginning, in John 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and nothing was made that was, nothing that was made was made without him. That's my paraphrased version. <laughs> Colossians 1 tells us that all things were made by him and for him. We see this fulfillment of these things in the Old Testament, this, this connection that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust and our praise. Number three, what do we learn about Jesus from these names? As the Son of God, we learn that he is the Savior of the world. We learn that he is the promised Messiah. We learn that he is a sufficient substitute, a sinless lamb. John the Baptist got it right when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. And he is the glorious King. As the Son of God, these are the things who Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ accomplished as a, as a man. Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but he was God the Son. He eternally existed with God, and he etern eternally existed as God. Each person in the Trinity is fully God. And none of them are less equal, less significant than the other. He was not created. You see in, in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, or Hebrews 1 and verse 6, he says, let all God, uh, and when he brings the firstborn into the world, the word, the word here just means introduces him. When he's introduced into the world, he wasn't created, but he was introduced. He was the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the sovereign Lord in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. He is strong and mighty, a supreme leader. He is self-existent and the one and only true God. You see, this is why it's so dangerous. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to me lest they, no one can come to the Father lest they come through me is to understand who he is when he makes that statement and to trust him in it. The last thought this morning is, is how, shall this, how shall this introduction or how should this introduction of Jesus impact our life? We get to enter in and see his glory. We get to see who he really is. It's in many ways like Isaiah 6 where, they, where Isaiah walked in and he saw the full glory of the Lord. We saw his robe fill the temple we see this also in these verses here where the Lord is clothed with creation. The glory of creation is just the clothing of the Lord. How, shall this, how should this impact the way that we live our lives? How should this impact our faith? And first and foremost, it's just to embrace Jesus. 
It's to embrace him as God. It's to embrace him as capable. It's to embrace him as sufficient. It's to embrace him as sovereign and supreme over all things. It is to see Jesus Christ as God. Because this is who he is. And in him, being God and being man, neither minimized by the other, he is able to bring salvation to his people. We embrace the person of Christ by faith, his eternal existence with and ask God, his divine birth, his perfect life, his substitutionary atonement, his glorious resurrection, his return to heaven, his promise of eternal life in a heavenly kingdom, his forgiveness and mercy through the cross, his gifted righteousness in the resurrection, and his glorious sovereignty in life. If we just simply see Jesus for who he is, if we see him as glorious and capable, we will then be able to trust him as glorious and capable. I want to close with this verse in Romans chapter number 10. And I want to just challenge your hearts this morning to, to see Jesus, to see Jesus in, in light of who he is, in light of what he says about himself in the New Testament and what he connects us to in regards to the Old Testament, to, to see Jesus in all of his glory, to see him as the fulfillment of all of these things that were lesser than him, that were meant simply to point to him, to see Jesus for who he is. And when we see Jesus for who he is, that we might embrace him by faith, that we might trust him, and we might live for him. The Bible says in Romans 10, verse 9, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ, or that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. In other words, if we would believe what Jesus Christ has done, believe who Jesus Christ is, embrace that personally in repentance and faith that we will experience salvation. He says in verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, those who are believing in Christ will never find him to be a failure. We'll never find him to leave us alone. We'll never find him to forsake us. My challenge to our hearts this morning is see Jesus for who he is. Connect him and his power and his greatness in creation. And when he came to this earth and became a man and, and died for our sins, he was no less the God who created the universe. He was no less the Genesis 1-1 God than he was the John 1-1 God. And we can trust in that reality we can depend upon him, not just for salvation, but for everything that life throws at us. Jesus Christ is capable. Jesus Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is sufficient, and Jesus Christ is sovereign, and there's nothing too big for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world from heaven, sacrificed all of the glories of heaven for a season so that he might 
bring salvation to us. He might save a people for himself. We thank you, Lord God, for that reality. Help us to maximize the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to see what's in the word and to treasure you as a person, Lord God, to trust you and depend upon you. If someone's here today that doesn't know you, hasn't yet submitted or surrendered their hearts to you, I pray that you would open up their minds and their hearts to the truth and help them to believe and accept and embrace what Jesus Christ has done. Please go with us today, Lord, as we leave this place. Be with us through this week in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.